Uh, in the book of John, we want to look at some things and understand exactly why the book of John was even written. In John chapter 20, John chapter 20, the last two verses. John chapter 20, the last two verses says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What was the purpose of the book of John? He wrote that these signs could be to you proof that Jesus is the living Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. In fact, in the next chapter, the last chapter of the book of John, chapter 21 it says at the very last verse, in fact, if everything that Jesus did were written down in books, the world itself could not contain all of the volumes. Isn't that amazing? So there's never been an attempt in Scripture to identify everything that Jesus said and did. But the things that were written were written so that we might have the evidence, the proof, and sufficient information that Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and lead us to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, these eight signs that we're going to look at this morning uh, is really, it's like presenting evidence in a court. It's almost like after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Jews and, and the non-believers were actually in Jesus' lifetime, the Jewish people called him a rabbi. They accepted him as a Jewish teacher, a rabbi. They have had in the history of the Jewish people many, many, many radical rabbis. Some of them just were radical and lived out in the desert. Others led people astray here, had their little congregation. It's kind of like Christianity today. There's a church on every corner, and now in every shopping center there's two or three. And uh, so everybody's got their own little take, and, and the rabbis had done that. And it wasn't unusual for a rabbi to be so radical that he got killed. A mob took him out. But when Jesus claimed to be God, that drew a line in the sand. And not only was he accused of being a radical rabbi, he was accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God. So obviously after his resurrection and the disciples begin to claim that he had risen from the grave and he was almighty God. The, the, uh, the Jews began an intense campaign. Eventually, uh, it ended in persecution of running the Christians out of Jerusalem and even uh, anywhere they could, they led persecution. But this evidence 
could be presented like it was in a trial. After the life of Jesus, perhaps there was a trial. I want to take you to an imaginary trial today. There's a prosecution that's going to try to prove without doubt that Jesus was a fake, is a radical uh, uh, rabbi who'd gotten killed because of blasphemy. And there are witnesses, many witnesses, who come and tell us of the miraculous things that Jesus did that changed their lives, that changed our world, and that Jesus, in fact, is the Son of God, our Savior. The trial is over. The prosecution has presented its case and arguments. The defense comes now to present its final argument and to rehearse for us what the witnesses have said. The first witness was a servant that was present at the wedding feast. You remember? John recalls it for us in John 2, 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of feasts called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. But when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine unto now. The servant's testimony was pretty simple. Jesus, they'd run out of wine at the wedding and oh, it wasn't going to be an embarrassment for the host. It's like inviting all of the bride's folks, all of the groom's folks, their kinfolk, their family, which probably amounted to the whole town. And they were having a uh, reception, and in our day a reception lasts a couple hours. In their day, it lasted three or four days. Depending on how much money you had, it might last ten days of celebration and feasting and and uh, drinking in celebration. But whatever the length of time that had been appropriated for the feast, they ran out of wine. And so to us we say, so what? But for them it was a huge embarrassment. And apparently Jesus' mom was somehow related to these folks and Cana just a little, uh, you know, to our walk five-minute drive from Nazareth anyway. And uh, so uh, Jesus' mom came to Jesus and said, hey, fix this. And he said, huh? <laughs> and he said, well, mom, i got to check with the, with the father. And that was his first miracle. Uh, God literally gave Jesus permission to fix the problem broken in the way. Now, how simple is that? How why would Jesus pick this first miracle to be just adding to the refreshment at a wedding? I mean, it looked like he'd have done like call fire from heaven or done something like that. But now, look, Jesus is interested in the very slightest and smallest details of our life. And so the servant testifies that he went with Jesus to the well at Cana, the public water source. And they carried these water jugs. We're talking 30-gallon water jugs. 
they had rope collars on them. They would insert sticks through them, and it took two to bear them. And so they carried the water pot, seven of them, filled them with water to the brim, and brought these things back to the feast. Then they drew from them into serving jars, and they went, Jesus told the lead servant, go first to the master of the feast. The, probably the mayor, probably the highest ranking guy in town. Go there, the one at the head table, the one at the honored seat, and pour for him first. Now, this servant's thinking, these folks are out of wine, I'm fixing to pour them water. This ain't going to work out real good, but I've either got to disobey Jesus or go do what I'm told. So he went and do what he was told. And when he poured into the cup, water became wine. Wasn't anybody shocked more than that poor servant was. And so he just kind of decided maybe I'll lamble on off and tell my buds that it's not going to be so bad if theirs works out like mine does. And the master said, no, come here. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you serve the best wine last when people have already drank probably enough or too much and certainly their palates are accustomed to the alcohol? Why would you serve the best last? Because the best came from Jesus. That's why. And so the servant's testimony was that Jesus was so powerful as God, he could literally turn water to wine. And he loved those people and served them in that fashion. In John chapter 4, there is another evidence. And that evidence is a nobleman, a very rich man. But his child was sick. And you know it doesn't matter how much money you have. You can't fix sickness to death. Now all the rich people that have everything, their family dies and they die. Just like the poorest. Job called death the king of terrors. John chapter 4 verses 49 and then verse 51 the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. The, Jesus told the guy to go on. His son was okay. And when he got home, they said, Your son's well. He's doing fine. And the man asked... What time did my boy turn around? And they told him. And he knew that it was the exact hour, the exact hour, the time he had been with Jesus. Maybe he kept that old sundial. Maybe he brought it with him that day in court to testify that at the exact hour, when I was with Jesus, he healed my son that was sick unto death. Does God still heal? Absolutely. 
except he doesn't let me pull his strings. There's some who teach that all we got to do is command God to heal and he's going to heal. We can demand God. We can ask God. We can believe God. Especially if we pay enough money to the preacher. God heals. Hear me. God heals. We should pray for healing for the sick. But we don't pray for healing for the sick to get well. We pray for the sick to live in order to bring glory to God. I'm telling you, when I'm on my deathbed, if you dare try to get me up, unless it's for God's glory, I'm going to be mad. If I'm sick, sick to death, you let me go see Jesus. Okay? You let me go on and see Jesus. Now, if God chooses, if you want to pray for me to get well, pray that God would let me live to His glory. We're going to talk about Lazarus in a minute. I always thought Lazarus was mad at God. <laughs> you know, there he was, already made the trip, and Jesus called him back. <laughs> I'll explain that in a minute. But the young man was sick, and Jesus healed him. Why? Well, there's been a story that's been in our Bible for over 2,000 years about the mighty power of God that's evidence that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. And faith in Him and through Him gives us eternal life. What happened to the little boy? We're not told. But we're told why he was healed. John chapter 20, these things, these signs that you may know that he's the Christ to God's glory. John chapter 5, it's an interesting story. There's a man who's been crippled. And he's laying at the pool of Bethsaida, or Bethesda. And there was a custom, and it was probably a miracle that took place each year. During one of the Jewish festivals at the pool uh, of the five porches, Bethsaida, there was a stirring of the water, and the first one in would be healed of whatever his infirmities were. Problem is, this guy was crippled. He couldn't get up, and he didn't have anybody to help him. John tells us about it in John 5 and 8. Jesus said to him, see, Jesus went to the guy, and he said, Hey, what can I do for you? Now, Jesus already knew that. That was a conversation just to get the guy in the program, you know. And he said, Oh, he said, make me well. I don't have anybody to help me in this water. You can do it. Make me well. Jesus said, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Perhaps he testifies, I don't really know why I held on to this thing. Because at first I really didn't have any place to go. You know, beggars didn't have homes. Beggars that could not produce income to feed themselves or to feed a family, there just simply wasn't enough to go around. So most of them simply lived on the streets. I was in India several years ago and going to the airport at 3 in the morning 
and I saw people. Everywhere there was an overhang or an awning, there were people wrapped up in blankets. And they looked like a bunch of mummies. I thought, my Lord, these folks are all dead, and they've stuck them out on the dock to be picked up by whatever. And then there was a soldier standing there with a gun, and there was a milk can. And come to find out, it was their welfare program. If someone was homeless, and in Bombay there's 15 million people, 5 million do not have a home. But those that have no place just live on the streets. And at night, they gather in one of these locations. And an army truck comes by and drops off clean blankets and a milk can full of soup and a soldier. And they get soup to eat. They get a blanket to wrap up in, an awning over their head. And the soldier guards them all night. And the next morning, the truck comes back by picks up the empty suit can, dirty blankets, and the soldier, off they go. And every night, that's the way it is. So in a culture where people literally had nothing, this was this man's home. He lived on this rag. Years and years and years. But Jesus said, take it up and walk. He rolled it up and walked off. I don't know how far he got before he realized he didn't have a home. <laughs> so he still had to live on his blanket a little while till finally he contacted some relatives and they understood he could be a productive citizen. I bet this thing stunk, don't you? Maybe the lady of the house washed it, thought they'd save it for some piece of rag but he could bring it with him that day to court. And he said, Jesus told me to roll it up and walk. And I did. He healed me instantly, completely, wholly. Jesus healed me. Brother, Jesus heals you physically in this life or chooses to heal you in eternity. He'll heal your spirit right now, this minute. There'll still be trials and struggles. Everybody in this room hurts. You hurt in your head, your heart, your body. You hurt in your head because of stress. Everybody's on some kind of a, you know, happy pill. I believe we all do like Church of Christ and have communion every Sunday and put that weekly Prozac in it. <laughs> Just have a whole congregation of happy people, you know. Everybody's stressed out about something. Are your heart broken over a family situation? People tell me about dysfunctional family, I start laughing. I hadn't seen a functional one yet. Everybody lives in dysfunctional family. Then arthritis begins to set in or some ache or pain, and you get gray hair, and you look in the mirror and say, God, what happened? Everybody hurts. There are situations. You ask somebody how they feel, pretty good under the situation. Everybody's under a situation. But you can have spiritual peace. You can have absolute confidence that no matter what's 
broken. He's in charge. He's in control. And one day, even if it is at the resurrection, it'll all be made right. Jesus is the healer. Oh, there's another story. And this time a little bitty boy came, just a young man, maybe nine or ten years old. You remember when Jesus preached to the 5,000? After he got through preaching to the 5,000, he said, well, we need to feed these people. And they said, huh? I mean, like, there's not a Kroger out here on the hillside or, a, or you know, like a Piccadilly or anything. Besides, if there was, we don't have any money. And how are we going to feed these people? Where are we going to buy bread? <laughs> Andrew, <laughs> Andrew tickled me. Andrew jumps up and said, Oh, there's a little boy here. He's got some loaves and fishes. And then he said, Oops, how stupid did that sound? A basket of loaves and fishes for 5,000? One of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a little boy here, five barley loaves, two fish. What are they among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they this little kid comes to court. This little kid's bringing this basket with this tied up little, little sack in it. He reminds me of every other kid, just hungry all the time. Just hungry all the time. And so he knew better than to leave home. Man, you don't leave home. We're trying to help Thomas lose some weight. You know, my grandson... He's just got out of the fifth grade. He wears size 10 shoe. He's tall as I am. He weighs 200 pounds. So we're trying to help him slim up a little bit because he does want to play football, and he probably <laughs> might be good at it. Uh, at least they'd have to run around him. <laughs> They're not going to run through him. And, uh, so we had, and so I caught him the other night. He was on the way to bed, and he had his hand clutched just like that. Thomas, come here. What's in your hand? The reason I noticed it, I saw the stick sticking out. He had like suckers and candy, and he was headed off to bed. You know, boys don't intend to get very far away from the groceries. So this little fella decided, I don't know where this thing's going, but if they're going up there on that hill for preaching, ain't no grocery store up there. And so he carried him a little fish and biscuit with him, thought he'd have a little fish biscuit sandwich somewhere along the way. And he's in court testifying that Jesus wanted my lunch. I kind of had some reservations about giving my food to him, but I did. And he stood there. And he broke that fish, 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 and he broke that. And the fish never ran out, and the bread never ran out. The more he broke it, the more there was of it. And all 5,000 people sat down, and the Bible says, ate to their full. Wasn't just 
enough, wasn't just some, they ate till they were full. And then, you know, the disciples collected 12 baskets after that. And the little boy testified, unbelievable, unbelievable. Jesus could literally meet the physical need and the food need of over 5,000 people. Two fish and five biscuits. Amazing. Now, folks, do you understand the Gospel of John was written with these signs for what purpose? That we might believe that he is the Christ and that believing in him he's the Messiah he's the Savior and that by believing in him we would have life and life everlasting well obviously those people aren't standing in front of us today you understand but how much you Bible do you want to believe if you're here and you don't believe it why are you wasting your time here if you believe your Bible, these witnesses are truthful witnesses as much as if they were here in our presence today. John wrote this. He said he himself was an eyewitness of these things and these are the signs that Jesus did and he wrote about them in order that people would know that Jesus is the Christ. Peter brought a broken oar in John 6, 18 through 21. Tommy can go ahead and flash through it. It tells us of a bad storm, so much that the boat couldn't fight against it, so much that the water was coming in, so much that they were going to drown. Oh, by the way, who told them to get in the boat and go to the other side? Huh? Is it possible? Is it possible to be right square in the middle of God's will and still find yourself in a storm? Oh, yeah. That's scary. That's when you sometimes begin to doubt Jesus, huh? You did exactly what Jesus said and got in trouble anyway. What? God, why are you doing that? Well, sometimes he has to increase our faith. He strengthens our faith. And they went like he said in that storm. They feared they were going to drown. They fought against the waves till the oars did no good, probably broke. What happened? Now, this is funny if you think about it. There's a storm going on. These guys are scared. They're about to die. They're lifetime seamen. They have seen many floating bodies on the Sea of Galilee before. They knew what they were in for. And they're scared to death. And Jesus just comes walking up to them. That'd blow your mind, wouldn't it? Huh? You are absolutely dying and scared out of your mind. And here comes Jesus. And the Bible said they thought they'd seen a ghost. Well, I guess so. Would you expect anybody to come walking to them on the water? 
Yeah, Jesus got all that down. He got in the boat. Peace be still. Storm was gone. Hey, you know what the second miracle was? Immediately, they were on the other side. Not only did he calm the storm, but he moved the boat at jet speed. That's because I think they didn't have any oars left. <laughs> their, their power was, was out. And they were immediately at the other side. What kind of a man can calm a storm? What kind of a person can say in a storm that these seasoned seamen knew they were dead? What kind of man can say, peace, be still? God, the God-man, God alone. These things are written that you may know that he's the Christ. Oh, there's another story about an old boy that was blind, asked Jesus to help him. Now, this is crude. Jesus spit on the dirt, made mud and put it in his eyes told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash out the mud. And he could see. He could see. Magic mud, right? Magic mud. Nope. Mighty Christ. Has Jesus ever asked you to do something so dumb, so ridiculous, that you were afraid you were going to make an idiot out of yourself? You were going to be embarrassed beyond measure? Huh? Can you imagine this guy? He's got mud in his eyes. And he's going down the pool of Siloam. Somebody says, what are you doing? Ah, well, this guy put some mud in my eye, and I'm going down to wash it out so I can see. Huh? They say, I believe we're going to go watch this. This ought to be funny. See, Jesus sometimes asks you to do things absolutely crazy against common sense. Hardest thing about being a spiritual leader, an elder, a pastor of a church, is to crawl out on the limb when faith tells you to do one thing and common sense is telling you to do something else. You understand? Common sense says don't do that. Faith said, God said, yet yeah, go do it. He said, I'm going to make a fool out of myself. Well, a friend of mine said one time, whose fool do you want to be? God's fool or the devil's fool? Because we sure can, the devil sure can help us look stupid sometimes, can't he? He went and washed, and what happened? All he could see. Now, this is cool. Old Lazarus comes in, toting his burial cloth. You know his shroud? He said, man, all I remember is I was bad sick. And then it kind of went blank. I know I went to heaven, but God, he just didn't let me recall all the details. I just remember the greatest peace I've ever known, the greatest satisfaction a man could ever have, I felt.
anew. The details are gone, but that sense of what heaven was like. And I hear somebody calling my name. And I realize the master Jesus is calling me. I look up, I'm wrapped in these burial cloths like I never got out of that grave. Can you imagine poor Lazarus trying to get out of the grave? Don't look at They said, loose him and let him go. You remember? Loose him and let him go. They would take these burial windings and wrap each leg, each finger, each arm, each toe, and then they'd wrap the entire body, pack it with these spices, put a shroud over the body, and a separate face cloth. And Jesus called him out of the grave. Poor guy had to get out like that. And then he was unwound. He said, all I know is I was called out of the grave. I don't believe I ever met anybody like that that was called out of the grave. I fell in one one time, but some people had to pull me out <laughs> I didn't get called out the wages of sin is death the life giver is Christ he's overcome sin death and the grave he is almighty God and finally I love this story there's a story about Peter and John going to the grave after the women told them. Mary of Magdala told them that Jesus is resurrected. Peter and John took off. Now, John outran Peter, so that probably tells me he's either a lot younger than Peter or Peter is a man after my own physique. I, sus I suspect Peter was kind of a little overweight. And John was in shape, and so John, and so when he got to the grave, he just stopped and looked in. When Peter got there, and I don't know, he might just couldn't have stopped. You know, he's just going so fast, he went right on in. But Peter went in, and John followed. And the Bible says that John saw and believed. Saw and believed. What do you see? Well, the Bible tells us that the grave clothes were laying there intact. You remember us talking about the windings and the shroud that was put across? It looked like Jesus evaporated out of those clothes. Nobody had unwound him. Nobody had pulled off the shroud. He was still laying there, just flat like a balloon that lost its air. But there was this strange thing, this face cloth that had been laying across the face of Jesus was just folded and laid to one side. It was a sign. Would a grave robber have folded the face cloth and left it laying there it would have been trampled in the floor would it not 
Would not the grave clothes have been ripped off and laying all over the place? But it's almost like Jesus just turned around and said, I'm going to give these boys a little wink. And so he folded the face cloth and laid it aside. And when John saw it, he could only make one conclusion, one only. The Savior had resurrected. He had overcome sin, death, and the grave. These things were written that you might believe. Oh, sometimes I wish the eight of them were here. I wish you could hear it from their lips. But John heard it. John saw it. John was there. John was part of it. And John wrote it in the gospel so that we might know. The challenge this morning is to throw your Bible away or believe it. It's that simple. Here's the evidence. Reject the Word of God or believe it. Would you bow with me, please? Heavenly Father, I believe there are folk here this morning that they want to know Jesus. They keep waiting to be slapped upside the head or, or to see a sign or, or some kind of a, a handwriting on the wall or something. They keep waiting for a feeling, a moving. It's already here in front of them. It's already in the Bible. You don't wait on the feeling. You come in faith and believe Jesus Christ. And oh my Lord, the things that flood your soul in years and days after that. Both the good and the bad as we walk with Jesus Christ. But it's not in a feeling. It's in faith. We believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, based on the evidence. We make a decision to trust Jesus. I believe there's some here today that want to do that, that really will do that. Some of the rest of us are already Christian, we're already saved, but we just keep falling back. We slide back into the world's way. We forget that we serve the risen Savior, Son of God. We're waiting on His coming. Others might even want to be a part of a church family like this. and You'd come and express that today. But I'm going to ask that as God moves in your heart, I'm going to be down front. I'll be glad to pray with you and talk with you. Some of the elders will come. They'll be down here. And so if God moves and speaks in your heart today, you feel free to come. Will you stand? Let's sing together.